Please be seated. Good morning, I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here. Uh, And if you're a visitor, I'd also like to welcome you. And and please help, I'd like to reiterate uh, Camper's comment. If you're a visitor, we'd love to have you for dessert. Uh, (laughs) We could even do that Friday night at our place. We'd love to meet you. Uh, you're joining us uh, right here at the beginning, uh, just a couple weeks in, on a series on the book of Philippians. So if you'd like to be turning there in your Bible, as I seek to find it myself, you'll find that if you're using one of our pew Bibles on page 980. Last week, Camper opened us up in this series, uh, talking to us some about the background of the letter to the people of Philippi and Paul, the, the writer, his relationship with them, and we read through the entire letter of Philippians, and now this morning we uh, start our journey of this fall of, of going through it in smaller pieces, looking to see what God has for us here. Let me pray for us, and we'll, uh, we'll jump right in. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the gift of your word, and your word to these people in Philippi, and your word to us. Here in the pages of Scripture, you're a God who has not left us... Um, clueless about who you are. You've not left us grasping, wondering if you're a God who can be known and what you are like and how we can be in relationship with you. Instead, you've chosen to speak to us through the pages of Scripture. You're at work in this world through the power of your Spirit. And we pray by that Spirit this morning that you would meet with us, that you would open up the words of Scripture to us and bring us life for some of us for the first time and bring us life for many of us, uh, the life we need to taste today and every day. And remind us of your promise to give us life forever. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Philippians chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and to it we turn this morning. This, uh, these opening 11 verses of Philippians, in many ways, set their trajectories, you might imagine, for the whole letter. I mean, Paul is addressing uh, the Philippians, and he opens in a very conventional way in his time, which is to pray for them, but he prays these very specific things for them, which are themes that he's going to bring up throughout the letter. One of the things that stands out most on the surface is the warmth that he feels for them as, as he phrases it, they're partners in the gospel. 
that Paul's a part of this mission movement of bringing the good news of Jesus all across the world. Paul brought it to the people in Philippi. They responded, came to faith, and a church was started. And they're partners with him as he takes it uh, throughout the known world at that time. That's a lot of what Paul is speaking about here. Now, we're not going to talk about that anymore this morning because that's what we're going to, we're going to pick up that theme throughout as we look at this letter, the partnership that Paul has with the Philippians. What I want to look at, and us to look at a little bit more specifically this morning, is one aspect, one very particular aspect of Paul's relating to these people and his speaking to them, and it is this. He is reminding them that they are a people who first to last are dependent on God's grace. First to last, he says, your life in following Jesus is driven by God's grace at work in you. He says that's what defines you as followers of God. And we're going to see that in two ways. I was speaking to one of you a week or so ago, and, and he was telling me that uh, his daughter uh, has started to take, um, she's getting a little older, and she started taking notes in the sermon. And he looked over one Sunday, and he, before I even started, she put one, two, three. <laughs> she knew there would be three points. Well, there are two points today. Uh, only two, but oh, aren't they good? Okay, here we go. God's grace poured out on them, and here's where we're going to see it. That God's grace is what gives these people and gives us, first, a new freedom. God's grace gives us a new freedom. And secondly, God's grace gives us a new future. Those two things. God's grace gives us a new freedom and a new future. And we see this right out of the gate as Paul starts writing this letter. Okay, the first verse is what we find on the envelope of our letters when we get it in the mail. The to and from, right? Paul's saying, you know, I'm writing this to you along with Timothy. We're servants of Jesus. From. And then to the people in Philippi. And then verse 2. When the letter kicks into gear, what's the first thing he says? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That out of the gate, that is the first thing that is on Paul's lips as it so often is. And it is this very beginning reminder to them it is God's grace that is work, at work in you. Okay, what is grace? You may have heard this defined in various ways or may just be hearing that as you know one more Christian word that you have no idea what it means. Um, let me give you a definition of it. Grace is God's exorbitantly expensive free forgiveness and favor. God's exorbitantly expensive free forgiveness and favor. Okay, the first half of that, it did, God's grace comes to us for free. It costs us nothing. In fact, that's the only way we can find it and take it in. Uh, Isaiah, one of the prophets, puts it this way in Isaiah chapter 55. Listen to what he says so poetically about God's call to us out of the freedom and freeness of his grace. He says this, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Come, everyone who, who has no money, come buy wine. Come be fed. Imagine this scene. Uh, you, you, go to, uh, you go to a fine restaurant. And I actually did this with someone once. You go to Opus 9, for example, here in town. You order a steak. 
You order some of the, you know, the, the greatest of foods. They come and bring it to you. You begin to enjoy this incredible meal. And then the time comes to pay the tab. And you look in your wallet, and it's not there. Have you ever been in a situation where you didn't have the money to pay? I took somebody to Opus 9, and this person ordered and said, well, after the waitress left, Did you, you brought your wallet, right? And this kid who was like 15 said, no. What are you going to do now? There's good news for us. There's somebody who comes and pays the bill when we cannot. You there without your wallet, you come and the waitress comes and says, your meal's already paid for. It's already taken care of. And that impulse of I've got to pay, yet you know you can't possibly, comes to us for free. So the gospel first, God's exorbitantly expensive, free forgiveness and favor, but it is exorbitantly expensive. Isaiah picked this up, picks up this as well in chapter 53. He speaks of the very heavy cost of the forgiveness that we get from God. Born for us in Jesus. Listen to these words. Speaking of Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All of us are like sheep have gone astray. And we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What's Isaiah telling us? This meal comes to us for free, but it is incredibly expensive. And someone had to pick up the tab. And that was Jesus for us, giving us the most precious and expensive of gifts. Cost him everything for us for free. That's what God's grace is poured out for us. His favor given to us for nothing that we can pay. Okay, so that is what Paul steers them to in the very first real word of his letter. He points them to God's grace at work. And he comes back to it in verse 6. Look what he says. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He says, God is the one who began a good work in you. God is the one who came to you in his grace and brought you into relationship with himself. You had nothing to offer. God came after you. That's what he's saying to the Philippians. And he can tell them this from personal experience because he was there when they first believed. Acts chapter 16 tells the story of Paul coming to the city of Philippi. And, the first, and it tells the story of the first three people in Philippi who came to be followers of Jesus. And let me just tell you about them briefly. First was a woman named Lydia. And she was a well-to-do merchant who sold, the Bible tells us, purple cloth. To which we say, wow, purple cloth. For them, this would have been, in the ancient world, this would have been the finest of cloth for clothing. Only the very wealthy would have worn purple. She was a supplier to the rich and famous. And she was a wealthy woman herself. And it mentions that she has servants of her own, that she's the head of a household. Uh, perhaps she's a widow. Perhaps she's never been married. But in a somewhat unusual place in the ancient world, as a, as a woman, as the head of a household and the uh, the, the head of a thriving business. I mean, she was a remarkable woman. And in many ways, anyone would look at her and say, this woman doesn't need anything. Look at her. She's got it all going on. And yet, she, Paul, finds her, as well as others, Gentiles, non-Jews, who were gathered together on a Sabbath morning to pray together. They were a group of people who had come to believe in the God of Israel. And Paul comes to them 
And he preaches a sermon about Jesus. And she comes to faith. Acts 16, it says, you know, as she was listening, you know, the Holy Spirit opened her ears that she might hear. She comes to faith in Christ through hearing a sermon. This well-to-do wealthy woman seemingly with, from the from first glance at least, with no real needs to speak of, suddenly her life turned upside down. Okay, there's Lydia. Second person we see in Acts 16 in Philippi come to faith is another woman. But instead of being at the very top of the social ladder, she's at the very bottom. She is a slave girl. There are economic ladders. She's at the very bottom rung. And not only is she a slave, she might well have been captured in war. We, we don't know how she became a slave. But that, that is one way that often happened or became an indentured servant. But the remarkable thing about her is she was a great moneymaker for her owners because she was, the Bible tells us, possessed by an evil spirit that allowed her to tell people's fortunes. Okay, so we have a circus freak show going on here. These owners are making money off of her. This woman who is uh, at the very bottom of society, broken internally and externally, just fragmented as a person as she is torn apart by this thing inside of her and she's being exploited by her owners to make money from it. Tells a story about her following after Paul for several days, proclaiming, here, is this, here are the servants of the Most High God and they've come to tell you the way of salvation. Now on the surface you hear that and you think, well that sounds just about right. But imagine Paul and Philippi trying to tell people about the real God and circus show is following after him. This one that everybody in town knows, stealing the show and taking away the real power of the gospel. And so finally he turns around to her and in the name of Jesus, he drives out the demon. Now, what happens in that moment? I think what happens is the beginning of a very broken life being suddenly and dramatically put back together again. Somebody in inner war, and suddenly the enemy expelled and gone and set free. So first you've got Lydia, this well-to-do woman. She's got all she needs, yet changed by the gospel. And here you see this woman, broken inside and out, also changed by that same gospel. This time, not through a sermon, but through a dramatic display of God's power, the power of the Holy Spirit coming in and doing a remarkable exorcism. Unbelievable. And then we get to the third uh, conversion when Paul says, God who began a good work in you, here's the one he's also thinking of. You can imagine the, the owners of the slave woman that were none too happy that you know, their, uh, their, their great cash endeavor has now been thwarted. So there they are with no more fortune-telling demon-possessed girl. And so they take Paul and his companions to the civil magistrate. He has them beaten and he has them thrown in jail. There they are in jail at about midnight and they're doing exactly what you and I would have been doing. They're praying and they're singing songs of praise, hymns, and they're just excited that God is good and he's with them. And all of the people in the prison are listening to them and suddenly there's an earthquake and it breaks open the gates of the prison and their shackles fall off. Not only theirs, but those of the other prisoners in the jail as well. The jailer comes running into the darkness, sees that the doors have been thrown open, and he draws his sword because he's going to kill himself because he's been disgraced, and Rome will have him killed the next day anyway because he has fallen down on his duty until he hears from the darkness, stop, wait, we're all here. And there's Paul and his companions. No one has left. He runs in, falls at Paul's feet, and says, what must I do to be saved? The third convert in Philippi. Not hearing a sermon, 
not having a, a demon driven out, but seeing this remarkable life that here are these people, prisoners, who are given the chance to flee to freedom, who stay. What would make them stay? Tell me about this God of yours. We've got these three very different people. Where are you? You know, the, the, the well-to-do person with no real needs on the surface, the one very broken inside and out, the one who's just trying to put one foot in front of the other and make ends meet, you're just holding down your job and suddenly something breaks in and you say, God is at work here. When Paul looks at them, he knows that God is indeed at work in them because he was there and he saw it and he knows God is good and faithful and he, takes, he speaks of these people set free by grace. And then he uses the most remarkable expression for him. And you, you probably cruise right over it because it just doesn't make much sense to us. But look again in verse 1, back in the envelope to this letter. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Those three or four especially shining, radiant, holy people in that congregation. No. When he uses the word saints, he is speaking to the whole congregations. He's... He's saying, you, holy ones, people who have been made holy. Right, you used to be a well-to-do merchant. That's where all your hope was. You've been made holy. You used to be a broken, demon-possessed wreck of a human being. God has come in and healed you and made you holy. You used to be a jailer, making ends meet. God has come in and made you holy. He says that to them, and he says it to us. His people. He says that's what God's grace does in our lives. It comes in and it sets us on this road of faith. God who began a good work in you. Us to recipients of grace. Grace, the exorbitantly expensive, free forgiveness and favor of God. Given to them. And given to us. See, God's grace brings them a new freedom and brings us a new freedom. And secondly, God's grace brings us... A new future as well. This weekend, as you may know, we had a marriage conference here. Uh, and the, the conference was great, first to last. But, but I think in many ways, the defining moments of the conference came in about the last 10 minutes, the end of the conference in the, in the Q&A session, where we've been talking about the skills of communication with your spouse. We've been talking about how to uh, break some of the poor cycles we have or the ways we just get lost in some of the same old arguments. Some of us could tell stories about, you know, feel like some of the issues of our marriage are the ones that we've been working on for years and years and we keep coming back around to them. Somebody finally asked the question, and the question was this, are things ever going to change? Or my spouse and I or any of us, are we going to keep circling around the same wagon all the time? Will anything get better? Will anything really change. Let me ask you this. What are you looking to to bring real change in your life? What's going to do it? What's going to bring the change that you and I want to see happen? Paul orients them to a sure future that has consequences for their own struggle with sin in the present. He points them to a new future. Look at what he says back again in verse 6. I'm sure that he who began a good work in you, God's grace, he brings it into our lives. I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
that same God who brought his grace into your life at the very beginning of your walk with him, he is going to bring it to completion. He is going to take it all the way home to the day of Jesus Christ. When Paul says the day of Jesus Christ, it's, it's, it's almost a, um, a technical term for him. It, it refers to the day when Jesus Christ really is coming back. He's returning. There's a day when he is coming back to judge the world. And Paul says, God is going to see you through from this day until that day. He is going to bring it to completion. He is going to make sure that you, the one he brought to faith, is going to stay there. He is going to bring you and your life and your walk with him to completion. He's going to do it. And he goes on to say, our hope is not simply that okay, one day we're going to sort of get there and somebody's going to snap their fingers and everything's going to be right now. But that there is real change as we long for that day as well. Look with me at verses 9 through 11. Here's how he's praying for the Philippians now, okay? These people who had been put on this road of faith by Christ, these people who one day would be completed in the day of Christ. He says this, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You see, he's saying God's grace is bringing real change, real growth now, today. That's why Paul's praying for him. He says, I want you to taste this more deeply, this grace in which you find yourself Grabbed by God, it is at work even now, and it is bringing real change even now. Back to our marriage conference, uh, the pastor who is leading the conference uh, told the story about um, his own life about 15 years prior at, at at a time in which he had a major depression in life, and he felt like everything just fell apart for him. And he said that it was through the broken pieces of that that he felt like God finally started to teach him the reality of God's goodness and grace for him and started to put the pieces back together. And he said, that was 15 years ago. And he says, I'm I'm a different person today than the man I was then. It's not that I don't get hints of the same old struggles, but God has been at work. And the only thing that I can point to to show the change is that God has been at work. Uh, Elizabeth, my wife, and I, we can tell you stories about members of our family uh, that at significant points in their life, later teenage years, just ran away from Jesus, pursued all kinds of things, and God mercifully bringing them back, bringing unbelievable change in their lives. We can look at it and see in our own lives. I've told you guys this story before, and it might seem minor to you, but it was serious for me. I, I have this lifelong just bent towards being sarcastic and sometimes hard. And there's this one point in high school where some friends of mine took me aside and said, do you think you can go through one day without saying anything sarcastic? I made it about 11 and a half minutes. Uh, and at that point, I thought, you know, there might really be a problem with this. Um, and thankfully, by God's grace, some of you, that wouldn't be your first thought of me. There's a really sarcastic guy because God's done good work. He's done good work. Now, I can give you a whole list of things where God is very much still at work. My selfishness. My defensiveness, tendency to criticize, all those things. But you see, we are reminded here by Paul that God is at work. And the grace that brought you into relationship and the grace that seals us for the end is the grace at work now. Saw it in our 
speaker's life. I saw it. I've seen it in our family. I've seen it in me. And truthfully, I've seen it in you as well. Because I know some of the stories. Those past struggles and past tragedies. And the present struggles. And the present tragedies. God at work. In what to each of us feels like a very messy life. But in Jesus, there is one resounding note that is going to have the final say, and it's this one that's, that sings most loudly. God's grace at work in us. It is God's grace that brought us to Him, and it is God's grace that sustains us and guarantees that He is at work, and He will complete His good work in us. God's grace is exorbitantly expensive, free forgiveness and favor. The one that brings us a new freedom and the one that brings us a new future. Let me just sort of finish with this question. What are you looking for to change you? And is it your ability to finally, I haven't done it yet, but maybe tomorrow I'm going to finally get it right. Whatever get it right means for you. I'm going to finally excel well enough in school. I'm going to finally earn it at work. I'm going to finally get through a day where I don't let my spouse down. I'm going to get it. Or is it this? The only hope we have for change, and the one we can, in fact, bank on, is God's grace at work in us. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion. And you see, Paul opens his letter to the Philippians this way. He wants this to be solid in their mind. God is at work. And His grace is the thing that has power in your life and in our lives. His grace at the very beginning. His grace that sees us through. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that You would help us to hear and believe what You say is true. Help us to take You at Your Word. To remember again that it is you who brought us to faith. It is only your grace. And to remember and to believe that it is your grace that sustains us today and every day. That all our efforts to be good are worth nothing in buying your uh, favor and pleasure. Lord, however good our lives might be, when we come to the table of your banquet, our wallets are empty always. But you meet us and give us a gift, a meal that is rich and for us free. Because you have paid an unbelievable price that we might be welcomed into the banquet of your love at your table. We need to be reminded of this always. May your grace be the thing that fuels us as individuals. And it may, be, may it be the air that we breathe in this particular church. May it be what we always have on offer to each other and to the world around us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.